Okay, so now we, we've kind of done a couple uh, illustrations about Isaiah, and we've paralleled Isaiah with the book of Revelation. Uh, a lot more can be said about that. We're going to go on and talk a little bit more specifically uh, now about one story that has to do with Isaiah the person. Okay, and that has to do with, remember, here's Isaiah down here. And we have the splitting of the kingdom, or, I'm sorry, splitting of kingdoms up here, 931, and then the Assyrian captivity, 722 B.C. So Isaiah is kind of right in, in the heat of the thick of all this. And um, our first story here, which is a very familiar one, I'm sure to many of you, involves uh, the king of uh, Judah, Ahaz, and the king of Israel, Pekah. And at this time, Israel and Judah uh, were at war. And um, Israel had uh, aligned themselves with Syria. The king of Syria was Rezin. So Rezin and Pekah here are um, attacking uh, Judah. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. Okay, so Isaiah involves himself here in this story, uh, told in Isaiah 7. When King Ahaz ruled Judah, war broke out. Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, attacked Jerusalem, but were unable to capture it. When word reached the king of Judah that the armies of Syria were already in the territory of Israel, he and all his people were so terrified that they trembled like trees shaking in the wind. And the Lord sent another message to Ahaz. I, I left out the first message, but this was the, his second message in, in the context of this battle. Ask the Lord your God to give you a sign. It can be from deep in the world of the dead or from high up in heaven. And Ahaz answered, I will not ask for a sign. I refuse to put to the Lord the test. And if you know anything about Ahaz, um, you know, he, he wasn't a, a very good king. And I like the uh, footnote here in, in the net a Bible study has like 80,000 translators' footnotes, but I thought this comment was good. False piety. Okay, this was a smokescreen to cover up his lack of faith. He was not, uh, you know, uh, righteously here trying to say, well, I don't want to put God to the test. So Isaiah told him, listen to this government of David. Okay, he's talking to King Ahaz. It's bad enough for you to wear out the patience of people. Do you have to wear out God's patience too? Well, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. A young woman who is pregnant will have a son and will name him Emmanuel. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Okay, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with this passage, but who does this refer to? The Lord himself will give you Ahaz a sign, a young woman who is pregnant will have a son, will name him Emmanuel. Okay. Who does that refer to? Well, we're familiar uh, with this, of course, as a messianic passage here. Uh, notice the translation that, that I just chose here uh, uh, had young woman, and here we go forward into Matthew. A virgin will become pregnant and have a son. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And uh, so this is a really a hotly uh, debated text here, Isaiah 7:14. But maybe we can just go back here and ask, would this be helpful as a sign to King Ahaz? Uh, say King Ahaz, in about 750 years, a child will be born. And that child will be a sign to you that the two kings you fear so much um, will be deserted at that time. Well, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to Ahaz. It wouldn't be a sign to Ahaz. Would it? So what do we make of it? Uh, well, the issue here is, um, you know, the, the Greek uh, Septuagint, when they did the translation, 
of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, the specific word, Greek word that was chosen did mean uh, virgin. Okay, but if we look at this word here, um, and the controversy kind of came in 1952 when the Revised Standard Version of the Bible came out. This was um, kind of the first Bible to really challenge the uh, popularity of the King James Version, which from 1611 had been you know, the popular version for uh, over 300 years. And uh, the Revised Standard translated this verse as young woman. And this was uh, extremely controversial at the time. I just put one quote from this, that a pastor in southern United States burned a copy of the Revised Standard with a blow lamp in his pulpit, saying that it was like the devil because it was hard to burn and sent the ashes as a protest to the people that were involved in, in translating this. And, uh, you know, this led to, uh, I think this was kind of a beginning of a, a, a time that some referred to as the King James only movement. And it's probably been about three years. I, I love this topic of Bible translation. We haven't talked about it in a while. I think it's, it's really fascinating how we get the, our current Bible from the Greek, from the Hebrew, from the Aramaic. Um, personally, I, I think there are a number of problems with, uh, with this King James only um, perspective. Uh, the King James, of course, wasn't really a, a new translation. If you read the original preface, to the King James Version, they admit this is a, a revision, a revision of the Great Bible, which was a revision of the Coverdale Bible, which, you know, ultimately most of it goes back to Tyndale. Um, well, I, mean, I don't know how much to say about this, but the, the King James, you know, you'll read in some place, it's a wonderful translation. I mean, it's poetic. It's uh, uh, just uh, beautiful, the, the words that were chosen um, for that time. There are some unusual passages you'll notice in Revelation um, and uh, they didn't even have a complete Greek for translating the um, book of Revelation. They had to use the Latin Vulgate for some places. Um, there are some problems also that most of what they knew about Hebrew and Aramaic was based on the Bible. Okay, translators today have so much knowledge extra-biblical about the Hebrew and Aramaic languages now that uh, many times that has really helped to, to round out the meaning Okay, so I'm not trying to hammer on the King James. I just think there are some problems saying that this is uh, the only way that you really uh, get it straight. In fact, even in the New King James, uh, which is a Bible that I enjoy, I use it quite a bit here in the Bible study. Uh, but if you read the story about the man who was by the pool of uh, Bethesda or Bethsaida for, what was it, 38 years, in the King James, in the New King James, uh, it is an angel came down and stirred the water periodically. And the first one in the pool... Uh, was healed. And that could present a little bit of a, a problematic theology. You know, you imagine uh, this man's angel perhaps saying, you know, God can't just one time, 38 years, can't we just heal this man? And God says, nope, the rules are first one in, gets healed. That's kind of the impression you could get from, from that translation. Well, the, the more modern manuscripts, I think, have cleared this up. It was a legend that when the pool water was stirred, that the first one in was healed. It was a legend. That doesn't come out clearly um, in the King James or even, even the New King James. But, the, you know, the, the words we're so familiar with, they sound more authoritative. Perhaps they sound more reverent. We're used to them from, from childhood. And so, um, anyway, we talk more about the King James Version. But um, Isaiah 7.14 then for many is used as a litmus test. New Bible comes out, new translation. Well, let's, just, let's see what they did with Isaiah 7.14. If it's virgin, it's okay. If it's a young woman, then it's, uh, 
whatever you want to call it, a liberal or whatever slant we might want to put on Isaiah 7.14. Well, let's, let's look at the words here. That is, there are two words in Hebrew here that could be used. Now, betula, which is not the word that was used, can only mean virgin. Okay, but the word in, in Hebrew is alma, uh, which can mean either. And I said I didn't want to spend too much time going into this, but if you, it's easy to do this. Just pick up all the times when this word alma is used in the Hebrew. And in most cases, it, it doesn't fit very well to insert or translate virgin for that word. It's kind of the counter opposite of young man or has more to do with uh, age than uh, sexual experience, as some um, translators have noted. So what do we do with this passage? You know, Matthew quotes this as uh, referring to, to Jesus, and of course the virgin birth and all of that is very important. Well, let's just read on in Isaiah and see if perhaps we can get some clarification. Okay, we're in just the next chapter. And the Lord said, Isaiah, get something to write on. Then write in big, clear letters the name Maher Shalar Hashbaz. And I will have Uriah the priest and Zechariah serve as witnesses to this. And sometime later, my wife and I had a son. And the Lord said, name him Maharshala Hashbaz, if I'm saying that right, because before he can say mommy or daddy, the king of Assyria will attack and take everything of value from Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, and Samaria, which was the capital um, of Israel. So this really was a sign to Ahaz. Okay, Mrs. Isaiah presumably had a son before he was old enough here to say mommy or daddy, these two kingdoms that were threatening um, Judah were taken away. Okay, does this mean that it doesn't also refer to Jesus? Well, again, let's just keep reading. The land of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, this is in the area of Galilee, was once disgraced, but the future will bring honor to this region from the Mediterranean eastward to the land on the other side of the Jordan and even to Galilee itself where the foreigners live. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They lived in a land of shadows, but now light is shining on them. For you have broken the yoke that burned them and the rod that beat their shoulders. A child is born to us. A son is given to us, and he will be our ruler. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, clearly, this isn't the the baby that was born to uh, Isaiah's wife. His royal power will continue to grow. His kingdom will always be at peace. He will rule as King David's successor, basing his power on right and justice. From now until the end of time, the Lord Almighty is determined to do all of this. And um, I think actually the, the choice of Alma is, is the right word for what actually happened. And uh, so we, we see this many times in Scripture where there's a prophecy that has an immediate fulfillment in that time, okay, but also has a much larger, more significant fulfillment uh, later on. So I think we could say, yeah, this, this word works. That's actually the best word, fit for Mrs. Isaiah, Okay, and also fit for 750 years later with the birth of Jesus. Um, last time we talked about you know, this passage about the king of Babylon. Okay, but then it very clearly doesn't seem to be talking about the king of Babylon anymore. It seems to be talking about uh, God's ultimate enemy. Okay, so there was an immediate uh, application of that to that time. Okay, but then there was a much larger application later. You read Jesus' description in Matthew 24, what sounds like end-time events. Well, a lot of that applied to that time, the destruction of Jerusalem. But then there was a much larger application later. So I think really this shouldn't be a problem. And I think uh, you know, versions of the Bible that choose to translate Isaiah 7.14 as a young woman, that does not negate uh, the, the virgin birth.
But anyway, enough on that subject. Let's go back to Isaiah 1. <clears throat> and um, I, I think it, Isaiah opens here with the very meaningful uh, passage that we've talked about many times. Listen, heaven, and pay attention, earth. The Lord has spoken. I raised my children and helped them grow, but they have rebelled against me. Okay, and listen to these words. Oxen know their owners, and donkeys know where their master feeds them, but Israel doesn't know its owner. My people don't understand who feeds them. I've tried to bring this out every time uh, we've come to it here in the Old Testament since John 17, eternal life is to know God. That's, that's such a, uh, something we're trying to uh, learn about as much as we can. And here the opening of Isaiah is essentially, my people don't know me. Okay, remember what it means to know in the Bible. It's, it's not superficial. It's intimate. It's relational. It's based on a knowledge um, of God's character. And, and so the book opens up here, my people don't know me. Okay? And we've read this before, I think, when we did Amos, but I just want to get the setting here for the people. So I, I chose the message, uh, which is not really a, a translation, kind of a paraphrase, but um, I, I think this, this really packs a punch here, the description of the people. Why this frenzy of sacrifices, God's asking. Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams, and plump grain-fed calves? And I kind of want to contrast. God is saying, you don't know me. And then he describes what they are doing. Okay, what they are doing here, it's, it's involving lots of sacrifices. And God says, don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer for performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. Okay, and so you can read this in any translation. I mean, there's no way you can get from this back to the Hebrew, of course, but the, the point here comes through. They're religious, okay, but their actions are completely the, the opposite of what God is really looking for, and so it's all meaningless. Okay, and one other passage, we have to go forward here to Isaiah 29, but on these people, they claim to worship me, but their words are meaningless, and their hearts are somewhere else. Their religion is nothing but human rules and traditions, which they have simply memorized. Okay, and this, we see this trend really beginning around this time that climaxed when Jesus came. With people, it was all about tradition. It was all about the rules. Okay, that was important. It wasn't really important, the treating people, all of that. That was way, way down the list. It was... Uh, doctrines, rules, tradition, those kinds of things uh, was what was really important. So, so just a point on this. I, I tried to decide what to contrast this, but uh, Isaiah here is talking about, quotes, religion. Okay, and there's another way. Let's call it God's way. And maybe I could just contrast here that, at least as I've tried to maybe put together some of these differences here, that religion, often the emphasis tends to be on me, uh, my salvation, and the specific rules and traditions that will get me to heaven. 
Okay, I think what we see so often in the Bible is really the emphasis is on God. Eternal life is to know God. That it is all about initially, as a first step, trusting God, committing everything to God, entering into relationship with God. That has to be uh, the, the center of everything. Okay, keeping a list may be a good list. Okay, but if it's absent this, then uh, it's, it's really meaningless. Uh, now, for many of you, this, this story might sound uh, ridiculous, so maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But uh, when I was in college, a rather conservative college, um, at that time, going to movies was, um, well, I was a resident assistant, and I could have lost my job if I was seen at a movie theater. Um, you know, watching videos was okay for some reason, but going out to a theater was, was for whatever reason, that just, that wasn't okay. And... Um, so I wanted to see the movie uh, Amadeus, and we've seen that on The Life of Mozart, and so I, I went in disguise. I wore a hat and jacket and everything, and, and I remember at the time thinking, you know, this seems kind of arbitrary. Some of these things, this is okay, this isn't okay, okay, and so every time in culture does this, but we tend to exact a lot of specific rules and traditions, and it can become to the point that that really becomes the, the religion. Okay, and uh, what's, what's our behavior? You know, the Pharisees uh, were, were very much into this. They heaped on all these things that we find in the Mishnah that were not in the Bible. You know, they washed their hands in a peculiar way, uh, did all kinds of things. Jesus couldn't heal on the Sabbath because they'd come up with all these rules and traditions. Okay, remember how John 1 opens. Jesus came to reveal God, that they might know God. Okay, they didn't know God. That was their ultimate uh, downfall. Religion often tends to emphasize doctrines, getting the right list. I think doctrines are important. Getting the right list, quotes, right list. Uh, I think we should really be striving for that. The do- doctrines, I think, are ultimately a hedge of protection around God's character. Okay, But if we're just going to contrast here, I think our emphasis, we've said eternal life is to know God, but really on love for God, neighbor, and uh, such a central message of Jesus, love for enemies. Remember the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul would contrast all these things. I can even burn my body to someone in persecution, but if I have not love, it's worth nothing. Love has to be supreme. okay? And it has to be supreme even over having the right list. We have lots of examples of people who had what I would consider to be a pretty good list. okay? But those were people that uh, you know, burned people that were involved in translating the Bible and all kinds of things. Love has to be, we have to elevate that. Okay, as supreme. If we have not love, uh, it's all worthless, as Paul would say. Religion often t- emphasizes who's in, who's out, um, who's telling the truth, who isn't. It, it tends to be often very judgmental and condemnatory. Okay, I think really our work is not to be uh, judgmental, condemnatory. Okay, we leave all that up to God. Okay, I think the emphasis that I see coming on the Bible so much, and in the Old Testament, all these passages about justice. Okay, it's caring for the outcasts of society, the orphans, the widows, the abused. Okay, that has to be, uh, you know, our, our job is not to, to sit around and judge others. Okay, it's to care for others. So I think we see a contrast here, and, and a lot of this comes up in, in Isaiah. But now this is the verse here we're going to um, kind of expand on here. I think it's very interesting. After said, having said all that in Isaiah 1, is this a very strange passage. So now listen to what the Lord Almighty, Israel's powerful God, is saying. I will take revenge on you, my enemies, and you will cause me no more trouble. I will take action against you. I will purify you the way metal is refined and will remove all your impurity. 
hey, it would seem like such a dramatic contrast. I will take revenge on you. I'll take action against you. I will purify you. Okay, it seems like we're, we're going in a totally different direction here. I put up some different translations of this. Two more literal translations, NIV and uh, NASB. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Or in the NASB, I'll turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. This is a good time to bring up different translations of the Bible because this really is, uh, this is a good translation, but maybe we don't know what it is to purge away dross or to remove alloy. Okay, so we have other translations that try to make it more understandable. Here in the New Century Version, I will turn against you, clean away all your wrongs as with soap. I will take all the worthless things out of you. And in the God's Word Version, I will remove your impurities with bleach. Okay? Now, the, the real meaning is it has to do more with refining metal. Okay? But again, you're, you're reading a, perhaps a Bible with a child. Yeah, you're going to have to do a lot of explaining here. But everyone knows what it means to wash with soap or perhaps to clean something with bleach. So I think we need all the translations okay, to, to, to round this out. But I think we're going to miss out on something, though, if we don't understand this is talking about a refiner's fire. So we need the, the more literal translations as well. So coming back here to the, today's English version or the Good News Bible, I will take revenge on you, I will take action against you, and then I will purify you. And the way it happens, it's like metal that is refined. And, and the purpose here, I, I think all of this fits together that the revenge, the taking action against you, that this is involved in, in a purification process. Okay, when I, quotes punish my children for doing something, it's not a retributive sense. It is, it is really discipline. I'm trying to refine uh, something. Um, so, you know, we, we could perhaps see it in that way. Well, our subject here really is fire. And Isaiah gives us a lot to talk about on the subject of fire. Okay, and, and a few chapters later, Isaiah 10, God, the light of Israel, will become a fire. Okay, then we take this in a literal sense. Israel's holy God will become a flame, which in a single day will burn up everything, even the thorns and thistles. Okay, fire in the Bible is such a huge subject. That's why we need to take in uh, every bit of information we can. Well, this is interesting. How would we uh, interpret this? You know, God himself is many times described as a fire. Okay, in Daniel 4, because the Lord your God is like a flaming fire. Hebrews, God is a consuming fire. What does that mean, God is a consuming fire? And of course, if we could maybe try to put these together, there aren't that many times in the Bible where God is this, very specifically. But he is described as a consuming fire. And of course, uh, the very famous passage in 1 John, God is love. Could we put these two together? That's what I'd like to do that, uh, here in this morning, to say God is a consuming fire of love. Can we make that work? Is that is the process uh, that's being described? Let me do my best, okay? Isaiah 6, let's go back here. We talked about this in some detail. Remember that um, Isaiah came into God's presence. He saw God in all his glory. I won't read the whole passage here. But what happened when he saw God in all of his glory? Okay, what did he say? I am doomed. Because every word that passes my lips is sinful. And I live among a people whose every word is sinful. Uh, I, it seems to me what is described so many times in the Bible is that when people are confronted uh, with the glory of God, okay, they see God as he is, and by contrast, there's something that happens. They see themselves as they are. Okay, it just seems to work that way. Everything comes into reality in that moment. 
Okay, and we can give many examples here of uh, uh, guilt that is experienced at that time. Isaiah certainly experienced guilt. And then what happened? He was touched with a burning coal. Okay, is this a literal burning coal that touched his lips? Now, there's meaning here, but this coal, um, then what happened? His guilt was removed, and now he is ready to give his message. Okay, let's try to give some other uh, illustrations here. I, I think this is a wonderful illustration here, a refiner's fire. Uh, I read a story some time ago about, um, you know, if you're refining metal, how do they know when to take it out of the fire? And, um, and, I, and I guess what happens is they, they look very carefully, and when the refiner here sees um, his own reflection in the metal, uh, they know that's the time to take it out. I think it's a good illustration. What is God doing as he uh, refines us with fire? Isn't it ultimately he's trying to bring out his reflection in us? All the impurities in the metal are brought to the surface. They're burned away. Okay? And is that a painful process? Um, yes, it's painful. If you've suffered from pride, selfishness, all kinds of things you didn't know were there. Okay? But as they come to the surface, it, it's very painful um, to try to... Um, and, of course, you can't do this on your own, but to, to, to rid yourself of some of these things. Okay? And I think God is leading us in our life in a process here of uh, like a refiner with fire to, uh, to purify us. So we get asked a question here, consumed or healed by fire? And we have examples of it working here both ways. Notice uh, this passage in Psalm 68.2. As wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. Even notice, but the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. Notice God hasn't changed here. It's just his presence. But what we see was the wicked. It's like wax melts in front of a fire. They perish. But for the righteous, okay, exactly the opposite. They're glad. They rejoice in his presence. They are happy and shout for joy. Okay, same God, okay, but a, a completely different reaction. It's kind of like um, you, know, you put clay and butter in the oven. Turn the heat up. Okay, one is going to harden. One melts. Okay, it's the same heat, okay, but it's, it's based on the properties of the, of the clay and the butter. There's a different uh, reaction that happens. Okay, I, I think this passage in Isaiah, it's one of the most uh, spectacular on the subject of fire. Isaiah 33. But the Lord says, Now I will do something and be greatly praised. Your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. Now again, who is, where is the destructive element coming from? Okay, your deeds, your breath. It's, an, it's, it's intrinsic. Okay, this is what causes the destruction. Your deeds are straw that will set, be set on fire by your own breath. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone, both far and near, come look at what I have seen. See my mighty power. And just keep reading on in this passage. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Now, that's clearly talking about God. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? And you read on. It's a wonderful passage, which I, I left the rest off, but some people do. He who walks righteously speaks what is right, and it goes on to describe people who live out justice. They care for the poor, the oppressed, the orphans. Okay, so again, a, a dramatic contrast here uh, between... One group of people and another group of people. To me, this almost seems to echo from uh, Revelation. You know, after the millennium, um, Satan and, and all the wicked people are resurrected. They march up on the kingdom. Okay, and we seem to have this polar opposite. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? <clears throat> well, uh, this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to try to 
pack a lot in here in the next uh, five or ten minutes. But I think this is also describing something very similar. Paul would say, for you are also are God's building or God's temple. Each of you must be careful how you build. For God has already placed Jesus Christ as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. Some will use gold or silver or precious stones in building on the foundation. Others will use wood or grass or straw. And the quality of each person's work will be seen when the day of Christ exposes it. For on that day, fire will reveal everyone's work. The fire will test it and show its real quality. If what was built on the foundation survives the fire, the builder will receive a reward. But if your work is burnt up, then you will lose it. And this is kind of odd here, but you yourself will be saved as if you had escaped through fire. Surely you know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit lives in you, um, and so on. And so this is, I think, describing the same kind of a thing. You know, the, the most important thing of all is that we build our foundation on Christ, that our character, uh, that everything is to, to mirror Christ. And so some people build on it with gold, silver, precious stones. Others use wood, grass, or straw. Okay, that's going to be burned up. And um, there are a lot of different ways of looking at this verse. But um, maybe we consider someone like uh, the thief on the cross. Okay, what did he do in his life? Well, we don't know much about his life, but he was a thief, apparently. And all he did was before he died, he put his trust in the one hanging next to him. How much did he know about the one hanging next to him? Well, put his trust in him. And presumably he will arise, you know, having built most of his life with straw, uh, whatever else, well, that's all going to be burned up, okay? That will be refined, but he put his trust in God. And I think had he lived on keeping his trust in God, well, then he would have begun to build using gold, precious stones, and other things, okay? It's, it's a natural thing that happens when you live in a relationship with God that, you know, healing and all that return uh, uh, comes about. But again, the key first step here is putting our trust in God, so the fire here, again, it's a refining process. And, and uh, it's not describing a, a literal uh, fire, certainly in that passage. In Romans 12, there's another interesting passage about fire, where Paul would say, don't pay people back with evil for the evil they do to you. Don't take revenge, dear friends. Instead, let God's anger take care of it. And we have to use the whole Bible again to understand, what is God's anger? Does that mean God's really going to give it to them? But I won't. Well, after all, the scripture says, I alone have the right to take revenge. I will pay back, says the Lord. But notice, what are we supposed to do? But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. If you do this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Uh, which is, uh, this is from the Proverbs. It's an idiomatic expression for making them burn with shame. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil with good. So the question is, we are supposed to transform our enemies by feeding them, giving them, you know, drink. You know, this is a, just to describe all the different ways perhaps you could treat an enemy. Uh, how does God treat his enemies? Okay, well, we see that in Jesus Christ. But I think, you know, Jesus is the ultimate understanding of how to treat enemies. So we consider Jesus. And, you know, sometimes Jesus can seem uh, so gentle that, uh, um, you know, we don't really even see him in contrast to the God of the Old Testament. But this is a description of Jesus in Malachi. Okay, and, and from a certain perspective, maybe it doesn't seem to fit. I will send my messenger to prepare the way for me. And then the Lord you are looking for will suddenly come to his temple. 
The messenger you long to see will come and proclaim my covenant. But who will be, be able to endure the day when he comes? Now, do you think about that with Jesus? Who will be able to endure the day when he comes? Who will be able to survive when he appears? He will be like strong soap, like a fire that refines metal, just like um, Isaiah. He will come to judge like one who refines and purifies silver. As a metal worker refines silver and gold, so the Lord's messenger will purify the priests. And I think this fits very well for Jesus. What was he rejected for? It was for the way he treated the outcasts of society, the lepers, um, the poor, uh, the way he treated the woman in adultery, all of these things, and that he didn't use power to defeat uh, the Romans. Okay, he was hated for all of these things, but... And this was like a refiner's fire. You reject that, okay, you're burned up. Okay, it, it, it consumes you. Uh, or, again, for the disciples and many others, this had a, an incredibly uh, refining process. Okay, so the fire has a splitting effect. It either is going to heal or it's going to consume. And so Jesus, I think, ultimately, this is, uh, this is the fire, if we want to come to one point in the Bible here, that... Um, the, the unparalleled love of God here revealed at the cross. I think we could go through everything that we suffer with. You know, do we suffer with pride and selfishness? Well, just when we consider that the one um, hanging here was God, okay, that he emptied himself. He was selfless, and that's God. Okay, that, that can't help but have an effect on ourselves. It burns up things within us. Okay, we could give lots of other examples. I don't think this, the, the cross has been fully uh, realized. Okay, I think uh, the, the light from the cross, when we see that the one really there was God, I, I think we have yet to see the, the real effect of that. But let's just read on here in Malachi, okay, where the Lord Almighty says, The day is coming when all proud and evil people will burn like straw. On that day they will burn up, and there will be nothing left of them. But for you who obey me, my saving power, power will rise on you like the sun and bring healing like the sun's rays. Notice it's the same thing. Destructive for some, uh, healing for others. You will be as free and happy as calves let out of a stall. So I think um, ultimately the, the, the bright light of God's goodness and love, it's kind of like the experience of Isaiah. If we want to imagine what is the day of judgment or, or this, this process, what does it look like? I think it really is, we have now a, an undistorted reality of who God is. And so it's kind of like, I am God and who are you? Okay, and we will see ourselves uh, as we really are. Okay, and, and this, this process is not just a well, blip, it happens at the end of life. It's something that is supposed to be uh, an ongoing process. And I think it's, it's dangerous if, if it isn't an ongoing process. You know, if you've been in a dark cave for three years and you've never seen the light, do you want to walk out into the bright sunlight? Um, no, you want to kind of gradually come out at midnight, maybe when there's no moon. You know, you want to kind of gradually acclimate yourself. I think that's why the Old Testament so much is written the way it is. God's trying to bring his people out of a deep, dark cave. Okay, eventually we see the bright light um, in Jesus. And just a few quotes uh, on this. This one, uh, Dr. Tonstead um, uh, shared a few weeks ago. I think it, it fits well with what I'm trying to describe. That the judgment be never judicial but revelatory. It is not the expression of the servile terror of men but of their comprehension of the divine reality. We understand God for who he is. It's revelatory. The judgment at this moment is then to be what one has actually wished to be, but seeing it in the light of God, what it was. Okay, we may be absolutely convinced that our pictures of God, that our doctrines, that all of these things, I mean, there's no question. 
Okay, but there, there will come a moment in time when reality will fully set in. Okay, we will see God for who he is and see ourselves as we are. Now, just a, a comment here. I've talked about the destructive aspect here of the fire. And um, many of you are familiar with this passage in Ezekiel 28. We've talked about many times that I think we can make such a great case. This is referring to Lucifer, his fall. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. Okay, that's God's presence. Okay, how is Satan destroyed? It's an amazing passage here in verse 18. You defiled your sanctuaries. Remember, we just read the passage in 1 Corinthians. You are the temple. Okay, build yourself on Jesus. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire from within you, and it consumed you. Again, the the destructive aspect of the fire, it it comes from within rather than being externally uh, imposed upon us. I let it burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching and, um, you know, Origen, who's gotten some bad press here recently, but uh, I think uh, is right on in this passage with fire. Scripture indicates that every sinner kindles for himself the flame of his own fire and is not plunged into a fire which has been previously kindled by someone else or which existed before him. Okay, so... Um, well, we just finish up with a couple of points. Uh, one, one danger I see if, we, if we're just going to make everything about a, a legal model is that it, it tends to emphasize, you know, the price was paid, and it often de-emphasizes then the importance of really changing and uh, coming to know God and becoming like him because, you know, price was paid. And so that, that's pretty much uh, the bottom line. And uh, just again and again and again in the Old Testament, it's by beholding we become changed. We are to become changed. This does, it's not a, uh, you know, perfectionistic kind of thing at all. It's just a natural process. It's unavoidable. Okay, but it's, it, it can be dangerous if we just think, okay, it's not really important what I do. I just want to, to get there and, and with the ticket. So if I can just conclude here with this passage. Um, in Isaiah 34. Next chapter is all this fire in Isaiah 33 and 34. And this is the basis for um, the third angel's message, the smoke of their torment that ascends for ever and ever. Okay, and this is talking about the Edomites, the rivers of Edom. Remember that Jacob and Esau, the two sons, descendants of Esau were the Edomites. And so I think it's uh, significant here that Jacob becomes um, Israel, you know, symbolic of all those who are saved. Here we have the description of the Edomites. The rivers of Edom will turn into tar, and the soil will will turn into sulfur. The whole country will burn like tar. It will burn day and night, and smoke will rise from it forever. Now, that's not how the the country of Edom was destroyed. They weren't destroyed by fire, okay, and it certainly didn't last forever and ever. So, you know, we could make some applications there. The land will lie waste age after age, um, and so on. So I think one point we can make from this is when Revelation refers to the smoke that ascends forever and ever. Uh, well, this is a description of the Edomites. Okay, they didn't burn forever and ever. They were destroyed. Okay, and, and so we can make some applications there. Um, I'm going to skip over this here just because of time, and I want to make a, a last point on that with regards to fire. Um, you know, Adventists uh, have, uh, I suppose, a rather unique uh, perspective. Well, there are a lot of annihilationists. Um, but uh, we're kind of known as annihilationists. We don't believe in an eternally burning um, hell. 
Uh, I think we could maybe describe it a little bit better uh, than we do, however, because, you know, how long would you last in a literal fire? You know, a second, split second? Um, what would it say about God if you survived in a literal fire for hours, for days? Wouldn't that be a miracle to keep you alive in that kind of a fire for a long period of time? Um, are we really describing uh, a fire here in Revelation that burns flesh? You know, that lake of fire that in, in Revelation, the false prophet is destroyed, uh, the beast is destroyed, and then Satan. But the, remember, what do the false prophet and the beast represent? They're, they're symbolic of, of uh, powers and political powers and so on. How do you burn those up uh, with a, a literal fire? What do we mean by the fire? Well, and, and here are some things, if I could just speak to our Adventist audience here. This is from Ellen White who wrote that an eternally burning hell preached from the pulpit and kept before the people does injustice to the benevolent character of God. It presents him as the veriest tyrant. And I had to look this up. It means the ultimate tyrant in the universe. This widespread dogma has turned thousands to universalism, infidelity, and atheism. Okay, and isn't that kind of a, a natural response? You know, we have a God that uh, would allow people to, to burn for all of eternity. Okay, that either, well, everyone's going to be saved, maybe I'll take that approach, infidelity, atheism, to reject God entirely. Because it seems ridiculous that, that God would, would be that kind of a person after we've seen Jesus. Okay, and so um, her last quote, which is what I'm trying to say about fire here, all the way through uh, the Old Testament. Her description, this is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. This is the description of uh, the destruction of the wicked. The rejecters of his mercy reap that which they have sown. Okay, again, it's, it's intrinsic. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. And, and again, the description of the Bible, it's not only fire, it's cast into the outer darkness. They receive the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them. Remember, God is a consuming fire. His very presence to them is a consuming fire. And the glory of him who is love will destroy them. The light of the glory of God, which imparts life to the righteous, will slay the wicked. Well, this is a difficult subject. It's something we, I think we really need to work on. But, but I think it's, it's one of the most important in my mind as we try to, to build our picture um, of who God is. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I just pray for each person here as we each seek to understand uh, uh, these difficult things uh, with, with greater light and clarity. Um, again, may we start with Jesus and um, help us to understand uh, how this process works, that we can have good things to say about you in the world. Amen.